0: This year, under the leadership of Ben Hutchins and our Westminster Choir, we're preparing for the resurrection by spending five Sundays with choral settings of psalms by the American composer Leonard Bernstein, psalms which were commissioned for a festival at the Chichester Cathedral in England in 1965. On March 4th, the adult choir of St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Burke will join our choir to present all five psalms in our 11 a.m. service. Then the following Sunday on March 11th, the two choirs will lead the service at St. Andrews. In addition, during Lent, Patrick Whitney and I will preach on the psalm to be presented on that particular Sunday. I hope that you will attend throughout this season, both to prepare for Easter and to experience a measure of continuity in your faith, even as continuity seems elusive in our world. Let us pray. Oh God, we do make a joyful noise in our worship. We do come into your presence with singing. We do enter your gates with thanksgiving. And we dare to pray that our worship will bring you a measure of the joy in receiving it that we experience in offering it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. I must have had to memorize Psalm 100 in Sunday school or confirmation, for it comes more easily to my lips than most any other psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. When Patrick, Whitney, and I signed up to preach the psalms in this series, I was glad that Psalm 100 fell to me. It is an enormously positive and hopeful psalm. Its five verses contain seven imperative verbs, verbs of command. Make a joyful noise. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord is God. Enter God's gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Each imperative verb then leads to brief indicative statements about the nature of God. It is God that made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. The Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Who can ask for more hope, more joy, more enthusiasm, more gratitude, more positive affirmation, more appealing characteristics attributed to God than those found in these five verses? But I also knew that when I selected Psalm 100, I was used for the title of the sermon, a phrase that I remembered in it that was less ringing than the overall mood of the psalm. The phrase is not in the version of the Bible in our pews, nor in the words that the choir sang this morning. The translation that we heard them sing reads, It is he that made us, and we are his. The translation that I learned as a child from the King James version of the Bible reads, It is He that made us, not we ourselves. Now the phrase in question contains the only negative word in this entire psalm, not we ourselves. It appears in a translation note in our Bibles as an alternative translation. Though my Hebrew is rusty, my understanding is that one Hebrew letter determines how the phrase is translated. If the letter, which is actually just a little mark, appears in the ancient manuscript that is being translated, then the verse reads, "...not we ourselves." If the letter doesn't appear in the manuscript, the verse reads, we are his. Thus, when giving thanks to God for having made us, for our being accepted as his people, for his serving as our shepherd, for his goodness, for his steadfast love that endures forever, and for his faithfulness to all generations, in a positive psalm like this, what does it mean for? That after we proclaim it is he that made us, we add, and not we ourselves. What does this sudden appearance of a negative phrase mean? This note of caution that's based on one Hebrew mark. What does that say about our faith? Why does the psalm take this slight dip in mood toward human limitation? Now, I had originally envisioned taking off from the celebratory nature of Psalm 100 to remind ourselves of the many blessings in human history that have developed over the past decades, indeed, over the past several centuries. Listen to some of the statistics of progress that columnist Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times and Steven Pinker of Harvard have recently cited in articles. In 2017, Kristof writes, A smaller share of the world's people were hungry, impoverished, or illiterate than at any time before in human history. A smaller portion, proportion of children died than ever before. Every day, he writes, the number of people around the world living in extreme poverty goes down by 217,000. 325,000 more people each day gain access to electricity and 300,000 more to clean drinking water. He then adds, as recently as the 1960s, 50 years ago, a majority of humans had always been illiterate and lived in poverty. Now, fewer than 15% of the people in the world cannot read or write, and fewer than 10% live in extreme poverty. Steven Pinker adds, through most of human history continuing into the 19th century, a person born was only expected to live to be about 30. Since then, life expectancy across the world has reached 71. And in the developed countries, it has reached 81. When we are able to step back and to set aside the divisiveness of our own politics and our increasingly inflamed racial and class divisions, we may find ourselves quite surprised by these figures. We had not realized that the news across the world was so good. And if we are religious... These figures can lead us to some of the hope and the affirmation that we find expressed in Psalm 100. 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come into the presence of God with singing. Give thanks to God and bless his name. The cadence of this psalm matches the cadence of human history. The Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever, and his faithfulness to all generations. That was the direction that the sermon was going. And I was going to use the cautionary phrase, not we ourselves, as a warning never to equate our strides in human history with godlike powers of our own. But then Wednesday afternoon came another shooting, another school, another set of young people killed, another set of teachers and coaches sacrificing their lives to save the lives of their students, another set of grieving parents, of heroic first responders, of community leaders with stiff upper lips, of candlelight vigils, of funerals in the faith traditions of those who had fallen. Then within hours, the anguished cries, we must do something, followed by calls for legislation so radically divergent that if recent history be our guide, no legislation is likely to pass the hopefulness of the first half of the sermon hovered near death with the breaking news that seems to never stop breaking. Yet being a preacher with the prospect and responsibility of standing behind a pulpit and facing a congregation and opening a Bible within a few days, I felt compelled to ask, can this psalm speak to us Now, Can it speak to us today? Can it express something that we are feeling, give voice to a prayer we are praying, or teach us something that we genuinely need to know? I think it can. I want to talk about three phrases in this psalm. The first is the cautionary phrase that I remember from childhood, not we ourselves. It is he who made us, the psalmist says, not we ourselves. Given our national mood, there is a sense in which this phrase serves as a prayer of confession. An acknowledgement that despite all the progress we have made across the centuries, we still have a long way to go in human history. There's even a sense in which Had we been the ones doing the creating, we would have fouled creation up earlier, more spectacularly than it has proved to have gone awry. Writing in the 18th century during that period of intellectual freedom and learning known as the Enlightenment, Voltaire provided a satirical counterpart to the bold confidence and sense of achievement that marked the era in which he lived. He wrote, men must have corrupted nature a little because they weren't born wolves, yet they've become wolves. God didn't give them 24-pounders or bayonets But they've made themselves bayonets and cannons with which to destroy each other. We weren't born wolves, but we have become wolves. What we have become is a far cry from God's original artistry. It is He that made us, not we ourselves. It is we, ourselves, who have become wolves. Second, even with this dark acknowledgement of what we have become, we can find our way to what we have been created and redeemed to be. And the words of the psalm can help us. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, the psalmist proclaims, and his courts with praise. Gates are the threshold of the temple, the door through which one passes to enter the public space of the house of God. Courts are the inner sanctum, the holy of holies, the place where God is thought to be present and reside. In this psalm, the psalmist is calling the pilgrim, the worshiper, the reader throughout the centuries to enter, to take a step into the temple, to look around its narthex, to take a pamphlet from its literature rack, to nod to an usher, to receive a bulletin, to take a seat. To listen to the choir rehearse prior to the service. Then, once the service begins, to sing the hymns. To say the prayers. To listen to the sermon. Then the psalmist is inviting us, the citizen, the searcher, the, the agnostic, the believer, the family member, To move ever so slowly from the gates into the courts, to the inner sanctum, to the place where God resides, to an encounter with the presence of the living God. In other words, the psalmist is asking us to enter the gates, but then move at our own pace into the courts where God resides. My friends, despite this compelling invitation into the institution of religion, the temple, the church, in the past several decades, we have seen and some have experienced personally the damage that bad religion can do. Terrorists setting off bombs in cafes in the name of God and of their faith. Priests abusing children and finding protection behind the collar and among the pillars of the church. Christians in our country so aligning themselves with partisan politics that the faith suffers both at its core and in the eyes of potential adherents. We have also seen studies that document declining religious belief and affiliation. Depending on the religious beliefs that one adopts or the type of religious institution with which one affiliates, disbelief and disaffiliation are sometimes better for human flourishing. We have seen the damage that bad religion can do. But I still maintain that when people are invited to cross the threshold, the gates of a healthy church, when they are welcomed, when they are cared for, when they are nurtured with dignity and thoughtfulness, they may eventually be drawn into the inner sanctum, to the courts, the place where they will find God, the place where they will find a faith that will call the best from within them rather than reinforce the worst about them. I do join others in believing that one reason we are witnessing more dramatic and large-scale violence as well as our relentless obsession with following it once it occurs is the sheer loneliness that comes when people often but not exclusively young people, are not nurtured into a relationship with God for which a healthy and caring congregation can be a catalyst. I'm making an argument, I'm making an argument a bit unusual for me, that part of the reason we are fractured as a society is that we are lonely. And part of the reason we are lonely is that fewer of us have a faith or have a faith community in our lives. This isn't a direct cause of people taking up weapons and killing masses of other people, but it is part of a climate in which such killing occurs. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. Enter, enter, come in, come in. Third, the psalm also calls the worshiper to give thanks to God and to bless God's name. In Jewish tradition from which this comes, thanksgiving refers both to the acts of song and prayer with which we express our gratitude to God and to the act of making an offering by which we serve the God to whom we are grateful. We thank God with our lips and then offer God the fruit of our labor and the work of our lives. Both lips and labor are part of the same gesture of gratefulness to God. My friends, I absolutely celebrate the human progress the world has made, but I also know and believe and trust that we can do better. Voltaire also wrote, I have a high regard for freedom if everything admirable in it weren't corrupted by passion and party spirit. The divisiveness that we have in our country, which is reflected in the passion and party spirit we see in Congress, but which does not begin in Congress, is part of the reason We are not doing better. The world has come so far. It has come far because of what we and others who have come before us have done. The world will go further. But still, we can do better. Christoph writes, the world is registering important progress. But it also faces mortal threats. The first belief, the progress, should empower us to act on the second. As much progress as we have made the last few centuries, we can do better by the Lord who has been faithful to all generations, the Lord whose faithfulness will never end. Amen.